My name is Huffa Frobes Cross. I am here with Josie Naren and Claire Henry from the Wildenstein Plattner Institute. And we are here to do our oral history for the Tom Wesselman Digital Corpus and Catalog Resume with Alan Rubin and Candy Spilder. So what I would like to start off with is to kind of get a sense of where you both were when you first started working at the studio. Like where, you know, what was going on in your lives and, you know, what were you doing artistically, educationally? Take me like kind of back to that time right before you started working. What were you up to? Yeah, where were you at? Okay. This is Alan Rubin. And uh, I originally got the job for Tom and later gave it to Candy or sooner gave it to Candy because I worked for Tom for three weeks in 1977, and then I got a National Endowment for the Arts grant and started selling my own work. So I said, well, Tom, I don't really need the job, but I recommend candy. And he said, well, I don't know. I don't know. Can she do your, you know, what you can do? And I said, oh, she can do anything I can do better. And that turned out to be an understatement, which he like thanked me profusely for recommending her later. But the reason I worked for Tom is I had previously built up my career as an artist assistant, thinking this is a good way to get paid well for skills that I obtained when I was at Cooper Union, where I met Candy, by the way. And uh, if I work for an artist, I can make my own hours, and I can use skills that are valuable, which was something that Wolf Kahn, another artist, told us to do at Cooper Mm -hmm. Union. He said, have a skill where you can make your own hours. So uh, previous to that, I worked for some unknown artists, and that led to working for Robert Motherwell for a couple of years, and after that for Chuck Close for a couple of years. And then I needed a job at one point. I was doing house painting and carpentry and things like that, and so was Candy, although she had another job working for another artist. And uh, I was in a show at the Downtown Whitney Museum called Nothing But Nudes, and I was on the poster and I was on the catalog cover because I had painted Candy in the East River nude. And I combined like a picture of her from Maine in a, in a pond and put it together with a picture of the East River and worked that together. I could show you, show you the image. And uh, that was hanging right next to a Great American Nude painting by Tom Wesselman in this show. There's a whole bunch of famous and less famous people. So I like Tom's work. I always did. Before that, I didn't really know Motherwell's work. But anyway, so I needed a job. So I wrote three letters, one to Lichtenstein, one to Lucas Samaras, and one to Tom Wesselman with resumes of who I'd worked for before. Tom called me up and he said, I have a guy working for me now, Richard Dimler. You know about him. But he may be leaving. So I will keep you on the top of the list and I'll give you a call. It was maybe almost a year later that he called me up and said, come on in. Richard moved on. Then I did my three weeks working, you know, stretching, shape canvases, things like that. You get a lot of skills at Cooper Union. And I could could pretty much, you saw my my canvases. I I can stretch anything. And so he was happy with my work, but then he went away for the summer. And then when he came back, I said, I won the grant. I'm selling my art. Let me try living, you know, living off my art. But so Candy took the job at the, in January 1978. I remember because I can remember things like that. She doesn't remember anything. And and 
tell what it was like to go to work for Tom. Yeah, and what? where were you at at the time as well? Like, what else were you doing before you started at the studio? I worked for Mirari, sorry, just not long term. I did house painting. Mm-hmm. That was awful. And You did a lot of airbrush work at, at yeah, that point. That paid really well. I was really well. good at airbrushing. Did I ever work for Chuck? You did some work for Chuck Clothes. What was the question? Yeah, that was exactly the question. Where were you at? What were you doing at the time? We were developing our own work and taking our time trying to have careers. Because when we got out of school, they said, take 15 years, and at the end of 15 years, take your work to galleries. Mm -hmm. And Well, what they said was, okay, now now you sort of know how to paint. Go out and practice it for all this time, and then maybe something will happen. Which is not what... Now people get picked up right out of school. Or right. in school, even. In school. And during those 15 years, that's what happened. All of a sudden, younger people than us were getting picked up. So we were being responsible, developing our, <laughs> our, 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 our painting abilities. Although I did go to Ivan Karp when I was in my early 20s. And he looked at my slides and he said, Well, if your paintings are as good as your slides, your career is made. And he, he came out to Brooklyn. We had a studio in Brooklyn. Uh, well, we had an apartment in Brooklyn with a living room. And he looked at my paintings and he said, you take good slides. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Uh, but that was okay because yeah, yeah. we didn't plan to have careers mm-hmm. until much later. So this is good because it actually takes me to something else that I wanted to ask, which was to kind of follow up on what you both brought up and go back a little bit. So you both met at Cooper Union, and did you were you in the same class at Cooper Union? Or were the same? Candy was two years behind me. Two, okay. I was a senior, and she was a sophomore when we met. And you graduated in what year? I graduated in seventy, and she two years later. Okay, cool. And, and we, we met and and became a couple very quickly, and then we traveled to Europe together. And if you can do that, <laughs> your, your your relationship can survive. So we've been together for fifty three, almost fifty three years. Yeah, we hitchhiked all over. We Europe. hitchhiked all over Europe. Can you imagine? You could, you could do that then. Yeah. That was yeah, nineteen seventy. Really, not, not dangerous. Amazing, yeah. I'm really interested, also though, in your Cooper Union time. Of course, you know Tom is a big presence there. He taught there for a bit. You know, he, were you kind of aware of him as a Cooper Union? luminary while you were there? I think we yeah, were. I don't think I was. I knew that he went there. I enjoyed his Great American Nudes and mm-hmm. his, you know the other work that I was aware of, but we were only becoming slowly aware of who else the art scene was. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that big then. Like Tom used to say that there were like 150 artists in the entire art world in New York mm-hmm. when he got into the art world. Yeah. Tiny. When he was yeah. fortunate yeah. to get into the art world. But 10 years later, when we got out of Cooper Union, you know, it's 150,000 artists. Right. And you were competing with them, and you needed a day job. You know, Tom taught first, too, right. but he didn't really want to do that. So He taught at, he taught at high school, high school yeah. art class. In fact, I know, I know somebody up there was a student of his. Really? In, yeah, in the fact, high school art class? Yes. Dana Duke. <laughs> and... Tom left very abruptly. Tom, in the middle of the year, he got into Janice Gallery. Mm. And then after the 
Christmas break, he just didn't come back. Mm. Just, they were they were really angry that he didn't yeah. say goodbye because they all liked him so much. So you met at Cooper Union, and yeah. it sounds like between the time that you graduated and the time that you started working for Tom, you were sort of under the advisement of the people that you knew at Cooper Union, kind of holding back from really trying to get gallery exhibitions, working for other artists. And every other job you can imagine. And every other job you Carpentry, can imagine. Carpentry, house painting, yeah. art moving, you know, whatever artists do, we, yeah, they had we a, did. I mean, there was a job book at Cooper. You could go yeah. see who was hiring somebody. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we found out that the working for other artists was the most lucrative and the most forgiving. But I, mm. well, I never, you know, picked out an artist and pursued them as a for a job. It's just, you know, whoever was offering that was it. I wasn't doing it because I wanted to be influenced or anything. Yeah, I, I mean, I was going to, because you mentioned that you had been in this show, Alan, with... Which is what directed me to Tom. With, with directed you to Tom. But Candy, it sounds like you weren't necessarily sort of clued in or particularly focused on Tom Wesselman's work at the time that you started working. No, no, no. Yeah. It was a job. It was just a job. Yeah. And once we did decide to have our own careers, you know, we'd send out dozens of slide sheets in envelopes, and some of them would actually come back with rejection letters. Most of them went in the trash. And that's the life of of an unknown artist at the time. But But working for other known artists, like the people we were mentioning, you get exposed to what it's like to be a successful artist. And we had no stomach for it. Really? Why not? It didn't appeal to us because you spend all your time doing business and then you make them work for the market and then you're not free to explore your own stuff because people tell you, you give me 12 of those and none of those. And we really just wanted to make art and see where it led us. And we weren't business-minded people. It kind of nauseated us. And hence, throughout our lives, even though we've had some success, it's always not had an appeal, and we're not great self-promoters. So So it's good that we had a day job. Yeah, actually, well, this, I mean, this is sort of a broad question early on, but I am curious since you bring it up, do you both see the long time that you spent working for Tom Wesselman as kind of facilitating the kind of art career that you wanted, i.e. one that did not involve primarily being involved in business and making work for the market because you had this other job and you didn't have to primarily do that? I mean, is, is that accurate? That, that, was, that was a reason that you did it? That was the plan. Yeah. Okay. That was, yeah. We didn't have to make a living from our art. So we were able to just make enough money working for Tom, and then just do whatever we want. Right. Plus, I mean, it was three, was it originally three days a week? Yes. Yeah, it was always three days a week. Three days a week. And then we got, and then we started getting summers off. Explain how how we got the summers off with Pet. Well, it was just me working. Actually, Richard, I worked with Richard Richard Dimler. Richard Dimler came back for a while. He was there for like a year when I was there. Yeah. And then he went off to Florida. But Tom went, always went away for the summer for 10 weeks. Right. And, I, and I said, I have to pay my rent. I have to get another job. Well, he was horrified. So so he paid me. Mm-hmm. Well, the first the first thing he did was he gave me a, a job to do over the summer. So I could, oh, he right. gave me embossed prints. I was embossed prints. Oh. Little 
the water portfolio. Watercolor oh, oh, portfolio. Yeah. The portfolio, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, she made them. I took the plates gotcha. home and I okay. pressed them and painted them in. I spent the whole summer doing that. Really? Just yeah. on your own? Yeah, Did, my, in yeah. My, at home. Yeah. You know, and kept track of my hours and then mm-hmm. painting. So, the, so was... the but so the embossed nudes basically were made over a summer by you on yeah, your own, he, just working. He had as all, an addition. As he, an addition, of course. He yeah. Had the, all the he had all the plates lying around that he had made just a few. He, I don't think he intended them to be an addition originally. Mm-hmm. Just made a few of them, and then I was there and could paint them. So he <laughs> that was turned into additions. Gotcha. Oh, I see. Oh, so initially it wasn't going to be an addition, and because you could so. do he it, just, he just made yeah. a few. Yeah. 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 To be clear, he hired us because of the Cooper Union connection, right? Because he knew that we would have the skills to do whatever he needed us to do. Because with Tom, everything was always what he needed, mm-hmm. and I, I love Tom and respect him, and I want you to know that he always saw himself as the most important thing. Of so, course, why not? Yeah. I mean, he was no saint. He was a great employer, super mm-hmm. generous, understanding, forgiving, patient, enjoyed the studio being a fun place to work, forced us to listen to country music, <laughs> but even sometimes let us play our own music. <laughs> So I'm really interested in what you said when you said that he was the most important thing. What? How did that manifest itself at the studio? What What are you trying to get at when you say that? What What was it? Well, first of all, one of the early things he told us was that he spent 15 years in psychoanalysis learning that he was number one, that he was the most important thing in his life, mm-hmm. which meant he wasn't there to serve anyone else. And that was his ego and persona in a good way. It meant that he went places that people who were less self-centered couldn't get to. And also, he was very lucky. He won the art lottery. I wanted to say that artist assistants are very often just as talented. I'm not saying we are. But as talented as the people they work for, but not as fortunate, not as focused on by somebody who said, you're the one I'm going to sell. And that's always been the issue, the situation. For every successful artist, there's a thousand just as good who don't get anywhere. And yet they interact with those successful artists and they feed on each other. So the people like us feed off of Tom. And sometimes Tom would feed off of us. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. You know, Picasso said, you know, uh, good artists borrow, great artists steal. Well, since you bring that up, I do, I, it just reminds me of this one thing I was going to talk about later, but you've led me right to it. So I feel like it's worth bringing up now, which is that Tom has actually said a couple of times publicly that he at some point decided to stop going to your studio. Because he was concerned that by going to your studio, he was getting ideas that he was... So can you just tell me a little bit about that situation from your perspective and how that all happened? I think I'm a little bit confused with exactly when it happened. But he used to, you know, he wasn't far away. He would make a regular studio visit every summer. 
he'd come and he was very entertained by what we were doing and and then at one point I think it was at in my studio he got really out of breath he got really like uncomfortable and he had to leave because he didn't feel well and he said I can't come here anymore because I have a venue and you don't so he didn't he didn't come did he ever explain anything more about why? Well, I was doing three... Oh, he also said, I'm trying to... This is silly, because he was already doing big three-dimensional works, yeah. you know, big canvases spread around and stuff. He said, I'm trying to get into 3D, and you've already done it. <laughs> what? <laughs> he even bought one from Ken. Really? Oh, you got to... Oh, I will show you. <laughs> While you're looking that up, when was this? What do you... Like, roughly what year was this it would have been in this the is, 90s sometime okay tom bought this painting this is four feet square you can't tell from this picture but it's, it's three-dimensional no. it's i can't three or four layers piled up with the i looked at it really closely i can't even remember what the layers are like the work in her studio like the figure is cut out and mm-hmm. on top of the other tom bought that out of my studio and took it home and hung it in his bedroom. Really? <laughs> yeah. Was that before he was doing 3D work? He always did 3D work, so, I, you know, I... No, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, he built the giant things with... Yeah, well, there was a symbiosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm curious, Candy, did you ever, before this happened, did you ever look at his work and think to yourself, oh... I see things that I'm working on in his work. She says no. But did you, no? You didn't. I don't, I don't think so. It's all I, I don't think so. Yeah. No, I'm not saying it necessarily in a negative sense. It doesn't have to be in a negative sense. I no. just mean. But so you think I did. You did. Yeah. I did when I saw you that saw he could make shaped canvases. Mm. I said. I mean, this is. I can make shaped canvases. That's, <laughs> this is what I was thinking of when I was making 3D. I wasn't yeah. thinking of Tom. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a couple mm-hmm. like them, like that in the modern. Cut out wood things are tiny. Yeah. Yeah. And at one point, she did a sort of circular <laughs> black. She, Candy did a circular black and white figural thing, 3D. And then Tom did a big abstract black and white mm-hmm. thing after having seen it in her studio. I did a circular? And then Jacques Caplan, the dealer oh. from Connecticut. Oh. You know her? I've I've seen his name quite a few times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he put us in a show called Artists and Their Assistants, mm-hmm. and and in his right. caboose in the caboose gallery, caboose gallery out in mm-hmm. Kent, Connecticut. It's funny because he was a furrier originally, oh. and I've asked my father, "Hey, did you ever know Jacques Caplan? Jacques Caplan? Oh, Jack Kaplan." <laughs> 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 but but. Jacques Caplan, when we were unloading work at his gallery one time, he alluded to, yeah, I saw something just like this at Tom's studio, wink, wink. Yeah, so he thought that we met, we he met, thought that, we, that Tom was borrowing from Candy, but we, we denied. Yeah. We met Jacques in the studio. Right, we met, met him in the studio. Right. When and Tom didn't to, have time to talk to Jacques, so Jacques said, do you do anything? <laughs> so that's why he did that show. That's why he did that show. Okay. Yeah. And we're here, by the way, because of Tom, you know he's. Oh, you mean you're here in this in location this house, because in this yeah. location because mm-hmm. we came up to visit him here. We got to know the area. 
A friend of his rented us a house by the river for three summers. We got to love the area. And so so Tom brought us to the area. But mm-hmm. we didn't work for him during the summer when he could have mm-hmm. asked us to come over and work. He was paying us, mm-hmm. but he never did. did and, you, yeah. That's... He, he was super generous. Yeah. And he gave us gifts. And he gave us bonuses and gave us summers off mm-hmm. with pay. And <laughs> man, at that at that artist and their assistants show at the caboose, yeah. we met Lichtenstein's assistants. Mm-hmm. And we started asking them, well, what's your pay situation? And then we started telling them ours. What are your perks? Yeah, what are your perks? <laughs> and as their jaws started to drop, we started embellishing. Making stuff up. <laughs> you know, well, like, yeah, we get to go on the private jet. Yeah. The private jet, <laughs> and, you know, anywhere on earth we want to go. And, and, and they were like, they believed us halfway through. It was a good joke. I definitely hear you about all of the advantages of working for him. And it leads me back to something that I was going to ask earlier, which is like, can you kind of walk me through a typical day at the studio? What was it like? What did you do? You know, how, obviously there were different things on different days, but like, yeah, give me a sense of what a day at the studio. You go first. Tom came in and sat down in his chair by the little, little tiny TV and turned on the stock market stuff. And he and made graphs of the stock market. Really? He had this. <laughs> he had a system. It was a visual system where he would draw these graphs, and there was something about things going up and down that he decided, oh, this, this is the buy point, blah blah. Because of, because of the drawing, really. It wasn't because he understood, the money stuff. It was because of the drawing. Did so he, he spent he spent a lot of time doing yeah, that and right. investing. Where are did, I want to <laughs> see these drawings? <laughs> They're just yeah, lines yeah, through, yeah, through and graphs. He talked to his, okay, and he okay. talked to his broker too. Moving average in the morning. Gotcha. That's what he did for most of the morning. Really, and he lost money consistently. Because that doesn't work. That doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> but he had fun, and you know he he had fun doing it. Yeah. Then, so I would, I would, he'd be doing that, and I'd come in, and I would have something, some project. We were self-starters. To work, work on, you know, I made paper things, I painted paper things, and I painted on metal and mixed colors, and you know all that. I mixed up paint for him and and handed it to him, and then he would paint. Mm-hmm. Tell match colors. Tell him about painting that work on Bristol board, and 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 when you he walked in on you. Oh, God. Okay, so I was there first, and then there's this enormous Bristol board thing where it has a tracing on it of a figure or something, and mm-hmm. I'm supposed to mix it. I'm matching some a little watercolor or something. Liquid ma- Making it big. And t- I heard the key in the door, and the door opened, and just as Tom stepped in the door, I knocked this jar of brown paint, hit the floor, made a volcano, <laughs> went, went oh all over God. this thing that, that I was working on and Tom, Tom didn't like miss a beat he didn't even like catch his breath or anything he just walked by and said huh just kept going <laughs> really? <laughs> that, that's very funny and, it's consistent had to start over but, but he was unfazed he was just like, like yeah. he didn't even blink it was like yeah. oh that happened <laughs> he didn't I, have a short fuse he, he had didn't. a very no. long fuse no it's calm 
It's funny because that's so consistent with things that I've heard from Monica, for example, where she's told me, I don't actually, I'm not even sure this was in the oral history, but she told me at one point that, you know, the first thing that she painted, you know, she didn't, she thought that she actually messed up and, and he came over and was just like, oh, it's fine. You know, very, very relaxed about it. So yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the sense that I got. He was very forgiving of error. Well, I might as well just quickly tell you that when they were moving, when we were moving the studio in 1994, we were backing all the paintings with foam core. And I was working with a mat knife <laughs> and I put a slice in the back of one of the paintings. And then I went and did another one. Two slices in the back of one of these million dollar paintings. <laughs> Stuff happens. And he had, he wasn't there at the time. He was at his gallbladder operation. Mm -hmm. So he was out for a few weeks and we were doing all the packing up at the old studio. When he came back, I waited until he was completely healed. <laughs> there was no way I wasn't going to tell him, but I waited until I thought he could take it because I thought he would be upset. And I said, Tom, I got to show you something here. This I did while we were packing. You see these two slices, whatever it is, you know, take it out of my pay. He had Geldzaller. Geldzaller? No. No, 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 no. Gold. Gold something. The restorer. Famous restorer. Oh, okay. Okay. Cost $900 to fix, to do, you know, realign it. And he didn't charge. And he, again, he didn't even blink when I showed mm -hmm. it to him. He didn't act disappointed. People, you know, people are fallible. He was extremely non-judgmental and forgiving. Kind. Kind. Yeah. yeah. Not, you know, better than us. <laughs> <laughs> My jobs, studio organizing, stretch canvases, underpainting, mixed colors, crating and uncrating, receiving from fabricators, demanding... I demanded an in-out book to keep a record of what was leaving and what was coming back. Okay, yeah, we can come back very, to that. He was yeah. very loose on that. Painting works on paper, additions, painting additions, tracings from projections, creating healthy boxes for the pallet table so that they, we weren't breathing the fumes. Mm. I built those. Designed, I designed crates and the wheeling crates. I composed text and wrote on the back. Monica said she wrote on the back. When she got there, she wrote on the back. <laughs> Before that, I did all the writing on the back. So, Candy, you never wrote on the back of? I must have. I don't... But not as much. No. Okay. I kind of remember writing on the backs of canvases, and, you know, with marker. Yeah, you did that. I put, you know, you had to write the titles and the dates and the dimensions and all that stuff. I did that. She packed up a birthday card with a painting bought by Yoko Ono, and the card disappeared, and she got blamed, but... No, I didn't. Oh, I thought she accused you of taking it. No. Not really. She was just no, not not directly. Well, you didn't take it, or else we'd have it. <laughs> and I composed text and stuff for writing on the backs of things. Although he did the original, I tweaked it to make it clearer for other people. Can we pause on that for a second? Because I, I didn't know that, and now I'm kind of curious. I mean, obviously, I, you would know better than anybody else, and I've spent a lot of time reading them. There are very elaborate texts on the backs of a lot of these works. So Tom originated that. And then you would sort of edit to make it clearer? I thought make it easier for someone like me to understand how to take that and put it on the wall. Right. How to how to because Tom wasn't the installer. I was the installer. So I tried to just make it clearer. 
Yeah, because we, I mean, just recently we were in the studio and working on a piece and yeah, the elaborate instructions, especially on the pieces, for example, that have multiple sections that have to be aligned correctly. That was um, him mostly before, okay. before I got there. Okay. So with like on the, for example, some of the metal pieces have very elaborate care instructions, sort of like what you're supposed to do to repair them, what you're not supposed to do when you handle them, <laughs> all those things. Those were the kinds of things that you would write or, okay, yeah. Now, the um, whole idea was that a, a total idiot could read that and understand what we wanted to happen. I mean, I think you did a good job. I, they're very clear. Oh, yeah. Thank, no, thank <laughs> Yes. Nail here, nail here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's me. <laughs> and putting the nails in the envelopes and making sure that everything went, you know, in and out of crates correctly. And only once did a crate come back empty without the painting in it. No, went out. It went to Germany, and we thought the artwork was in the crate, and it was between the crates. So you know, that was my that was my goof. Yeah, yeah. I didn't goof that often, but I can remember each one. Yeah. You want to hear more? Sure, sure. Working intimately with fabricators to correct drafts of metal works. So we would do the uh, designs on paper, give it to the fabricator. He would make a, put it together in a mock-up, you know, like careful, mm -hmm. like just like easy, simple weld, put everything together. And then I would take the original and make corrections. You know, Tom would be there too, but I would say, Tom, this, this looks like it needs to be moved over two inches. And he would say, okay, move it. Or, or sometimes he would say, I don't care about that. Uh, but I would, I, I was very good at pattern recognition. Gotcha. And so if anything was different than the original, I could point it out. And then Tom would decide whether he wanted to change. And the fabricators hated me because I made more work for them. What, tell me specifically, which works are we talking about here? Like the what, shaped metal works the, of, the, of the 1990s. The laser cut ones. The laser the, and... The aluminum ones were actually cut by hand, some of them. Right. Not laser cut. So, but, but also the laser cut ones that, the, would, that would be put together in a way. The laser cut ones, were, the flat laser cut ones yeah. were just finished. They yeah. came okay. cut out of one sheet of steel. Right. I'm, talk, I'm talking about the 3D aluminum ones. The 3D we, aluminum ones. Okay, yeah. We found um, the guy who wrote the original program for... For the laser cut. For the laser cuts was a friend of ours, so we... You know, when Tom said he wanted to do this, we said, oh, we know somebody who could. Really? Our friend was a physicist, and uh, he actually was the uh, president of, uh, what's that college at? In, uh, Hoboken? <laughs> I'm forgetting the name of it. Stevens it's Institute. Stevens, okay, yeah. okay. And he was also a computer expert. And uh, Early, you know, and, nobody could do anything. And Tom else. had a fabricator right. who wanted to charge him $100,000 to develop a program for laser cutting. And we said... Oh, come on, Tom. Our friend could do it for 1000 That's a joke. And he said, okay, get him. And he did. He did the same program that this other guy would have charged Tom $100,000. And we were protecting Tom from this guy's oh, Tom gave him neediness. A little, Tom gave him a little painting or something. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But, uh, but he was happy to do it. But our friend was happy to help make art. Mm -hmm. His wife was a painter. And so he came up with this algorithm for that, that he gave to the all the laser cutters. Gotcha. Okay. Because he was doing something nobody else had done: cutting art out of steel with lasers. That was his thing. Tom invented. Right. No, I no, I understand. And so with 
the aluminum works, the 3D works, the process would be kind of, you would submit something to the fabricator, you get it back, and then you would kind of have an editorial look. And you would often be the one to sort of give the okay or not to... Tom would give the okay. I would I would give them all the uh, anything which, which was anomalous. Yeah. That, that, that didn't match. Gotcha. And we... So it would take all afternoon to do that on each work that came in, a couple of hours. Uh, and also, you know, we did all the early uh, projections of the full-scale work. And then we would go to the fabricators in a big rolled-up roll of paper. We would trace the whole thing out from, the, you do from, the, the, tracing. from the maquette. Gotcha. So that opaque projector that you showed me in your studio... You would use that trace? Originally, but then it went from slides. Okay, yeah. And then we would also draw out all the individual pieces mm-hmm. that the fabricator would then cut out and put together. So we did all the work that Tom didn't want to do, mm-hmm. but he knew we knew how to do it. He would show us how he wanted it done. Yeah. He, was, he was the designer and the creator, right. and we were the... we were. In a sense, fabricators too. Enablers. We were enablers. <laughs> yeah, we we were a, a tool. Used us very well as tools, and we never did anything creative whatsoever. Mm. I'm remembering most mostly what I did at first was mixed colors because he would mm. always have a a tiny for a big canvas. He had a little tiny thing, and I would take the canvas and mix big, you know, huge blobs of paint and hand it to him. To match the smaller work. Yeah, because one yeah. thing you learn in art school is how to match colors. Yeah, right. I didn't... So we could look at his original color and come up with the exact color. And I did, I did a little bit of painting on those canvases that it was always underpainting. It was never the finished thing. Never finished, okay. Yeah. yeah. The only thing we did finish was the additions. The additions. Because that's like a printmaker. Right. And other than the embossed nudes, what other additions were you finished? Do you remember? I mean, I know I maybe probably did a lot, but are there any others that particularly stand out that you... Additions? Of the additions that you worked on? Smokers. There was an embossed smoker. That you also did. Oh, the embossed smoker. I think there might have been two. I think... There's two, yeah. There's just lips. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there's one. And then there's one. Yeah, with the cigarette. And then the smoker additions that were like made out of cardboard. We built those and painted them. Cardboard? You know, like the Bristol board. The Bristol board, the three-dimensional ones? Smoke. Did you build? Yeah. We sold a couple of those. We had those. Three-dimensional? Yeah. They're like little maquettes. They're yeah. like little maquettes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she has chosen to forget. She has chosen to forget that one. Okay. Yeah. I designed the lighting booms. I did, li- I did lighting for Jim, his photographer, and later for Jeffrey when he was taking photos, I would arrange the lighting because I was good at that. We cleaned the floor. We did. We, we, arranged, <laughs> we, we mopped the floor. It would take like a whole day. It was huge and really, really dirty. It would take a whole day to sweep. And we made a game out of and it. And mop the floor. Yeah. Right, you'd dance yeah. around. Dance around. And entertained him. We entertained him. Yeah. Because it was fun to make him laugh because he was from Cincinnati. <laughs> And he had very droll sense of humor, Bob and Ray. And so you had to come up with sort of extended skits and puns and, and you know, funny dances and imitations of people he knew. I won't... Yeah, don't who do are that. Who are still alive. <laughs> yeah. we, maybe off the record. Oh, yeah. And we just enjoyed trying to get him to laugh. 
and he appreciated it. That yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, it sounds like that was a big part of the. Yeah, I'll tell of, you a typical joke. Yeah, um, tell me. There was this Monty Python routine. They were in a shipwreck. They were in in the um, you know Monty Python was right, and they're in the what, what's the boat you whiskey lifeboat lifeboat okay yeah and and the uh, captain says oh oh how long is it and the mate says well that's a bit of a personal question. <laughs> And so anytime measurement time time ever, say, ever again. How big is it? How long is it? Well, that's a bit of a personal question, Tom. And never fail to make everybody laugh. That kind of thing. Gotcha. Okay. I figured out the nail hanging methods for the metal. Uh, <laughs> we arranged the original website. I, I was the one who repaired bent metal because I understood metal tolerances. Mm -hmm. Suggested the forklift and stair pulley system for getting things down into the basement. Oh, that thing. Yeah. yeah. That, that, I have. That was my That idea. was your idea. Yeah. So yeah. we were it, bringing things up and down yeah. the stairs, and it was very dangerous. These like 200 pound crates, if they slipped down the stairs, you could get crushed under it. So I said, you need a pulley. And we got an electric pulley. I guess off Amazon or somewhere before, off the internet. And he, he, I think he thought of the restaurant's rollers. Yeah. I backed and packed everything for moves. I did installations at Janice, OK Harris, Queens Museum. We did all New York galleries, Los Angeles, two, uh, two Paris installations, London, Tokyo, tubing in Germany. Did you, send, so you traveled to these. He people. would send us to these places. Interesting. Okay, so this because is because he wanted it done his way. Got it. And he and he supervised the Tokyo really? Museum ex exhibition installation. You did. Yeah. Wow. No, I I'm asking you that. The reason that I'm asking you that with so much emphasis is because we're actually currently researching that exhibition. There's a lot of things that we want to know about it. But so. I know that he never really wanted to travel. So no, never. When you would go in his stead to oversee it, were you were you kind of overseeing it, like both technically and also to make sure that everything was installed in a way that you thought was like appropriate and representative of his work? Would you kind of give critiques like, "Oh, this work and this work don't seem to be hung very well," like put this. Oh. I'm forgetting the name of the guy who went along with us. He was a, a art historian. I could find his name for you, but I... It wasn't I, Sam Hunter, was it? Or No, it wasn't Sam Hunter. It was the other guy. Trevor Fairbrother? No. Wilmerding? British guy. British. Who else, else is there? He wrote a book on Tom. He's on Instagram, but anyway. <laughs> he went, and he was pretty much the eyeballs, and Candy okay. was Tom's brain. So he would say, this should be next to this, and Candy would say, now Tom wouldn't like that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Or it's just simple as, it's too high, it's too low, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She was very good at that. Yeah. And so is that through, like, your personal experience, like, your kind of expertise, or is that kind of, like, putting yourself in Tom's brain? Same thing. Yeah, kind of the same thing. Well, we did it at Tom's, and we did it for well, ourselves. Yeah, we know yeah. we know what he wanted. Always. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Did he give you very explicit instructions on things that he wanted? Did he? Did Tom give you very explicit instructions on what he wanted before you went? Did he say, "I really want this, this, and this"? No. 
Well, he chose the work. He chose the work. Along with those guys. Later on, we did mock-ups of the shows. You know, mm-hmm. we do computer printouts, and we literally hang the show in a we little built, model. Not, right. Yeah, I've model. Seen those <laughs> little yeah, models. I've seen them around. Yeah. yeah, that was my idea, too. What were you asking me for? Um, oh, and at, at the Tokyo thing, I, I then did all the metal. I was okay. responsible for hanging all the metal things and lighting the entire exhibition. Gotcha. So that literally when the opening began and the guests were coming in, I was still up on a 14-foot ladder arranging the ceiling lights to get them just right because I, I understood how shadows should fall on these works and things like that. So did you do this for each venue when they were traveling exhibitions? Did you travel with the exhibition and each time it was reinstalled? Not all of them, but like when when the show from Tokyo went to Tübingen in Germany, we then went over to Germany to do it okay. again. But after it, like for example, with the Tokyo show, it traveled around Japan. You didn't travel around Japan with no, the show? No, we instructed okay. a Japanese crew on okay. how to do it. Okay. I had like 20 Japanese guys working under me. Yeah. And they, oh. they watching, begged me to slow carefully. down. <laughs> because I, I was jet lagged, but I was pushing them beyond what they were accustomed to do. <laughs> they said, you Americans work too hard. Okay, well, no, but that's really, that's really interesting. So on these big and we shows... we got paid very well for going over there. Yeah, yeah not only that, when we did the show in Tübingen, it was sponsored by Mercedes. Mm. So we got a car. Oh, wow. And took a long drive. They just gave Very us nice. a car to use for How long week. did we have for yeah. a week? We went to five countries, and six I countries. Said, yeah. I said, well, no, drive a Mercedes. What if something happens? And he said, oh, just go turn it in and get another one. <laughs> I said, don't we need a contract, some kind of paperwork? He said, no, no, just yeah. call us. Here's a car. Wow, wow. <laughs> it was a, a very fast car. That was fun. That does sound fun. It was fun parking it, going away and coming back and seeing the crowd like, look. Looking at this car. Well, this must have been a particularly fancy Mercedes. It was Mercedes. a really nice car. Yeah. <laughs> that, was in Italy, that was in Italy, in, at the uh, okay. Lago Maggiore. Oh. We went all over the place. Wow. So was this explicitly, I know Tom didn't like to travel. Was this explicitly the reason that he didn't go and he sent both of you in his stead? He didn't want to travel. He didn't feel like going. It was, it was so because he didn't want to get on a plane. because He, he was terrified of yeah. Yeah, he, he, he had panic attacks when he flew. You know, he just yeah. wanted to be in the studio. He, yeah. The um, first time we went to Paris, he was taking the Concorde. Oh, he did go. Yeah. He went to Paris on the Concorde thinking that he would have less jet lag if he got there faster. <laughs> <laughs> and we tried to say, Tom, it's the same. Time, time doesn't revolve around you. <laughs> But that's his typical way of thinking, is that the clock would slow down. So he would get there. The world would be a different time when he got there faster. But he really felt ill. You know, he just... He He was terrified of going. We had to go visit him in his hotel room because he was... felt sick. Yeah, he felt ill in the hotel and we had to go kind of calm him down. Encourage him. Encourage him. Tell him. He said, the kids aren't eating anything. There's no McDonald's. So we we took the whole family to our favorite cafe in Paris, and got them the equivalent dogs. of hot dogs, saucisson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. saucisson is a French hot yeah. dog, and because we had been to Paris several yeah. times, we had friends there because we were big travelers, and he didn't get it. I had to actually say to him, Tom, you know when you go to another country, you take yourself along, you don't leave yourself home, 
you will be there. You'll still feel okay. <laughs> and he kind of, you know, he listened, but I don't think he believed me. <laughs> but then when he went to London a couple of years later, he was much better. Yeah. He was much better. Although, well, another French show, we had to finish up hanging the show because he couldn't do the second day of installation. Mm. So I'm um, confusing which show that was, but maybe it was Marie France. And we would always take these occasions to have a free trip to Europe, to wow. Europe or Japan and then take a week to travel around by ourselves. Yeah. And they would pay us a per diem and for our labor, and then that would be enough to finance the rest of the trip and come home with a few extra thousand yen, that kind of thing. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we worked it. Yeah. Hey, yeah, do Just it. Just like I mean... Candy worked the summer vacation. And he... He went with it, and he, yeah, and it it worked for symbiotic. It symbiotic, for yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I want to go back to the studio for a second. There's one other thing, or there's a, another topic, a bigger topic that I wanted to talk about, because you both were there for a very extended period of time, right? As I understand, it was basically seventy seven, seventy eight until two thousand four, right? Right. Except I was gone for six years until I ran out of career. Okay. Six years. When was that? Well, I turned it over to Candy in 78, and I came back in 84. Okay. And Tom was kind enough to let me come back because I was doing house painting, wallpapering, mm. carpentry, and I hated it. I literally dropped a, a wallpaper razor on my nose and oh, almost God. cut my nose off. Oh, God. And that's when I said, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Please, please, let, let me come back, Andy. Oh. And she was so kind. <laughs> and then a couple of years later, she brought in Monica. And you know that story. I mean... You don't know everything about that I story. guess I don't... Well, I didn't know... From the story that I've heard, I didn't realize... You well, Explain to me how you brought in Monica. Tell me about that. We were at... And opening at Janice? Mm-hmm. Monica was our friend. For, she lived downstairs. In oh, our, yeah. Second, our second loft, she and her band okay. moved in downstairs, were kind enough to work on headphones when we asked them so to. So I said to Monica, come to the opening. I'll introduce you. Tom will want to draw you, and you can make enough to go to Europe. Okay, gotcha. Okay. I, mean, it was a jo- I mean, it was a joke, but... It was yeah, a yeah. joke. Yeah. Because she had this hairdo that was exactly what, you know, straight we, across bangs in this thing. She knew that Tom would, well. would fall in love. <laughs> yeah, I said, yeah. that's perfect. That's perfect. And so that's what happened. She. <laughs> but give the details. I don't know if I remember all the details, but okay, we're out there. She dressed up. Crowded opening, she dressed up. Black dress, and we're in the, pearls. we're in the room with it. And like that. <laughs> Hear the elevator open. Monica steps out, and Tom's like, what? <laughs> And we had told a lot of people that, that we had this plan. Mm-hmm. So when Monica got off the elevator, about 10 people went, <gasps> <laughs> And that directed Tom's attention. <laughs> okay, well, they, they had a conversation, and that was over. And then, But then I think the next week at work, he said something like, your friend that I met, I think she would model for me. <laughs> Gee, I don't know, Tom, I'll ask her. <laughs> Bingo! So it was a bit of a conspiracy, but it, wow. was, it was a friendly one. We were trying to help Tom, too. And a very successful one, apparently. Because, for everybody yeah. concerned. Because yeah. Monica needed a better job than she had at the time. 
And then she, she told became, you that. Yeah, yeah. And then she became central to his work at that point for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. Her work at the studio was, she did a lot of the painting and color mixing, things like that. But she was also, she interacted with people very well on behalf of Tom. So people would come in and Monica would chat them up and and put them at ease. And then when Tom was ready to do the business, he didn't have to be the schmoozing, which gotcha. he didn't like to do. Gotcha. That's why he didn't go to openings and he didn't, he didn't network and stuff like other artists. Well, he did originally before we knew him. Before we knew him. Mm. He, oh. really, he didn't, really didn't like doing it. So were you all doing some of that networking for him before Monica? Was that another thing that you kind of, no, not so much. No. Yeah. He didn't for himself. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that actually, that is, the Monica thing is actually directly related to what I was going to ask, which was just kind of, since you were at the studio for a long time, talking about how it changed in terms of who worked there and how it developed. So it sounds like Monica was the first sort of, after you all started in 77, 78, Monica was the first new person really to come in. Is yes. that right? Yes. Yeah. We, she modeled for us first, by the way. Really? Oh, yeah. well, we had a drawing group. We had a drawing group, and she she, she needed. Oh, she did mention that. Yes. She did yeah. When she that. came okay. to the city, she needed right. immediate work, and so we, you know, hired her gotcha. a little bit and did what we could to help them succeed because they were wonderful people. Did you ever listen to the Lost Tropics? I have listened to the Lost Tropics. <laughs> I have. Listened we listened to it a lot. <laughs> We went to their recording <laughs> sessions. We went to CBGB's religiously. Came up through the floor. Yeah, really? oh, they came up through the floor. Yeah, right. So we heard a lot of Lost Tropics, but they were good. Okay, that, well then I have to ask: so if you went to CBGB's religiously to see the Lost Tropics, if you could, I, it's a slightly off topic, but I do want to know: like, what was a Lost Tropics show like? What was Monica like as a performer? There's video. Yeah. I took it. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, I had yeah. a I had a camcorder in 1984, and I was recording their, all their CBGB stuff, and they have copies of that. I can't find it, but Monica has some. It was dark in there and smelly. Oh, it was jam-packed. Jam-packed. They would go up on stage, and, and Monica would be in a white T-shirt and, and a black skirt or something with tights. Or, oh, white T-shirt and tights, because she did not want to project I'm a sex object. She wanted it to be about her music and her voice. And a lot of people urged her, you know, dress up, show your tits. She wouldn't do it. So respect for that. And they would put on a great show. The audience would cheer. It was loud. It was flashy. It was kind of reggae-based. Right, that's reggae. I remember the night, the night that Roma Baron... Oh, right. The... Produce, producer, is that what she was? She worked for CBS. No, no, for... Some um, record company. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Came in with Laurie Anderson. Right. They came into the CBGBs mm. to hear the tropics. Wow. And I'm like... <laughs> 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 and they pointed, they pointed Roma out to us, and I sidled up next to her, and I said, don't you think they're great? You should sign them. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, so to go back. So Monica was there, and then who were the other people that started to join the studio? How did things develop after that? At that, you know, through the eighties and nineties. Yeah. I was by myself all that time, six you... years. Really? Yeah. Nobody else. 
Was you an intern? Did Georgina no. come in? No, not not Georgina. Doing... She was there later. Uh, he occasionally had interns, but they mm-hmm. they never they didn't really work out. You know, people uh, you were there alone. Credits for coming, but they couldn't really do stuff. <laughs> and, and Tom loved that candy was so quiet. Mm. <laughs> really? <laughs> I just he would barely know I was there. I'd go off and do my stuff. Yeah, but then then he started. His career was really booming, mm-hmm. and he wanted to put out more work. Mm. And so, uh, you know, he wanted to have you know, to free me up to do more color mixing and fabricating work and stuff like that. He brought in more people to paint editions, and that was Kevin Kelly and and Jeffrey Sturgis. It's funny because the day that Jeffrey came to the door, I opened the door. He knocked on the door. I opened the door. He said, "I'm here." Tom hired me, and he walked in the door, said hello, and Tom looked up and said. Who's that? <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't remember that he. Yeah. He didn't remember that he hired Jeffrey, but but Jeffrey worked there for a while. I don't remember how long. And then Cindy Tower. We brought Cindy Tower. She was the assist. She was the receptionist of the gallery that I was with in Soho. And she time. had worked for Red Grooms. Oh, okay. Uh huh. I was okay. with the Soho Gallery, and and which didn't last very long. And she had worked for Red Grooms, and we liked her. We liked her work. We just didn't know that she was unmanageable as a studio assistant. So she lasted a couple of years and then had to move on when Tom sort of culled. Mm. He, he laid a lot of people off because the art world crashed. Oh, when was that? 2000, I believe. There was a big down mm-hmm. in the art world. And so he... But there was another. Somebody else? 1990 was another art crash. I'm confusing the two now. Which one was? You know what? It was 1990 when, when he did that, layoffs. And he also cut our pay, which he was giving us more and more and more raises and raises and raises. And then he said, too much. You're making too much. And we were. So we didn't argue, but he, he gave us a cut in pay, and we figured that would change and he'd start again. But for 10 years, he didn't. Mm. For 10 years, he paid us the same amount when inflation was starting to bite. And uh, after the 10 years, we were starting to get grouchy mm-hmm. and grumpy. And uh, other things were happening with people who came in and were stealing from Tom. Yeah, we're really taking advantage. You know the story, but I'm not going to name any names because I don't want to get sued. <laughs> but people stole a lot from yeah. him. Yeah. And we had very good radar for con artists. Con artists and Tom was super trusting. He assumed everybody was as honest as us. Mm-hmm. You know, we would never steal from him in any way. And he gave people keys. And he gave mm-hmm. people keys and he let them walk out with things on loan. And that's when I started with the in-out book. Because I saw things going out that weren't coming back. Okay, so the in-out book that you're describing is a much later edition. The, the, the thing, one of the other big topics that we haven't gotten to yet that I wanted to ask you about was his record keeping. So the in-out book, that is something that you started in like the, the 90s? At the end of the 80s. and He had a receipt book. But if anything came back, he didn't like do anything to the receipt. Okay, so so he kept no record of it coming back. So I said, no, you you need an in-out book. 
because it sounded better than out in book. <laughs> and I, I created those. And so anything that went out had to be written down and signed. And then when it came back in, it had to be canceled. Gotcha. So, and that worked. And, and it made it hard for people to steal from him. But just let me finish the story about the 10 years of no, yeah, yeah. no raises. One day, he had this very nice guy from Cooper Union mopping the floor. And he was paying him like nice, nice amount. And he said, I'm going to give so-and-so a raise. And I lost it. I, I, I had a breakdown. I had a breakdown. I, I started like flailing around the studio saying, you haven't given us a raise in 10 years and inflation is cutting into it. We can't, you know, how are we ever going to get out of here? Right. If we don't, if we can't save money anymore. And we're good savers. Yeah. And after a few minutes, I went, <gasps> this was at the end of the day. And Monica was like, <laughs> standing in the corner, like turning white. And Candy was like, hmm, you know, this is interesting. And then we just went home and we came back the next morning. So he didn't react. He didn't react. And we came back the next morning. He said, sit down. We got to talk. And we thought, oh, this is it. We're out of here. <laughs> Finally, we're out of here. But we didn't have enough money then to like quit or anything. Yeah. So we were, st we were starting to think, oh, what are we going to do now? And he sat us down. And he said, well, I had a long talk with Claire. And I think you're right. And so I'm going to give you a 15% raise and 10% every year from now on. That's And that's how we have this house. <laughs> yeah. Also in our our final loft, we didn't pay rent for five years because we were being tortured by the landlord. So we withheld rent. And so that gave us the down payment for the house. And we won, we won, we got to keep the rent because of the court. Got to keep the rent. Really? Wow. And Tom's generosity and our misfortune with the landlord, which was hell, enabled us to move out of the city in 1989, which is when we moved here. But what was your question? <laughs> no, no. I mean, you're actually taking me through some important parts of this. But yeah, I think now that we've talked about the kind of way the studio changed over time, what I actually wanted to go back to, though, was this issue of record keeping. Because one of the things that I've been really focused on in my work is on the ledger books and the registration numbers. And when, you know, we've all talked to people at the studio, one of the things that we consistently hear is that Candy and Alan were instrumental in actually kind of solidifying that system of the registration numbers and the ledger books. So can you talk a little bit about like what that, where that was at and then how you kind of, worked on it or like what was your role in that well as well as the in-app book if anything was sold it would be noted in the new ledger yeah. book yeah there was the old ledger book and right. that was that was pretty much finished but the new ledger book was carried on and tom started it but i would make sure that anything that was sold or came back or whatever was notated in both places and then in the late 90s, well, Claire gave me their first computer when they were done with it. 
their little Mac. Wait, was that called the Apple II? Oh, it was that old. Wow. Yeah, it couldn't do anything. Yeah, that can't do much. It had a memory of 400 kilobytes. That's pretty much a typewriter. Fancy typewriter. But it made me familiar with computers because I couldn't buy a computer at the time and I didn't want one. I didn't think I had any use for it. But then I said, I told Tom he needed to computerize. And we got our own real computer, a real Apple computer in 1997. By 1999, we knew we were going to leave. We had a five-year plan, and we were sucking away all our money, and we we decided that we would go for five more years, save up, but we wanted to take our brains, which Tom really depended on. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he would say, test your memory, where is such and such, and we would always know where things were. Mm -hmm. Accumulated knowledge over time. But once we left, we thought, he doesn't know any of this stuff. So I wanted to put it all in a computer. And I convinced him without telling him the five-year plan because he wouldn't have liked it. <laughs> a little bit duplicitous, but I told him he needed to have all his computer, his records computerized. And so we brought in, we got a computer, and I designed the original inventory program <laughs> that Jeffrey then redid when he came. So we, we we brought in a guy. At t- one point, I started doing all the data entry, and he didn't like me sitting there all day in front of the computer. Also, I was digitizing all the photos. Everything was getting scanned and digitized, and everything we knew, our brains, I was trying to put into this computer so he would not be in any way inconvenienced mm-hmm. when we left. And we also started email and everything so that he would have communications with galleries you know, instantly, instead of everything having to be done on the phone, mm-hmm. long distance to Europe and all of that. We got everything up and modernized. Gotcha. But also in terms of the, like, the actually assigning things, numbers themselves, like deciding that, you know, the abstract works would have this registration number, or, you know, I'm thinking about series that developed during the time that you were there, rather than things that predate you. Like, did you, were you coming up with those, you know, that, that say, you know, the steelworks would be like a number S dash something. Like, were those things that you... I heard other people say that that was my system. Yeah. I don't remember doing that. Okay. But sounds like me because I was the studio organizer at the time. Mm -hmm. I wasn't the boss, even though Kevin Kelly called me Sarge. (laughs) But I was the taskmaster. But I, I, I... I had a sense of organization Mm -hmm. that worked for Tom's sensibility. And so I was just riffing off of his sense of organization. This is what Tom would want it to be, like S number. It made sense. Mm -hmm. My own inventory system does the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a similar system Mm -hmm. that I kind of, I stole Tom's software. and (laughs) I borrowed Tom's software and, and started my own inventory system. But I wanted everything to be smooth if and when we left. And when it came time to us leaving on schedule because Candy inherited some money, we, it was our idea to bring in Jeffrey. Oh, okay. To take over my responsibility. So you had stayed in touch with him in the interim? Yeah, he worked at Nancy Hoffman Gallery. Okay. And we, we knew yeah. him. We kept 
in touch with him. And he was coming in and replaced Tom's photographer when he died. And that's a whole other can of worms, a whole other story. But I worked with Jeffrey every time he came in to light things, and he would take the much improved transparencies. <laughs> right. And I thought Jeffrey could handle the computer work. I thought he could do everything that I was doing as far as studio organization. So I, a year before we left, I told Jeffrey, in one year, would you like to come to work, back to work for Tom? I will bring you in before we leave. And Jeffrey agreed. And so once we told Tom we were leaving, belatedly, we also said, Jeffrey's ready to come in and do the work. And so he agreed to that. And Candy suggested... I also reckon... What, the gallery closed or something? Janice was closing. Yeah, Janice, Janice was closing, and we knew Brian from... From working Janice. at... Because we oh. installed so all those shows. So Brian as well. Hire Brian, he needs a job. Gotcha. He can do stuff. Gotcha. Okay, so you also brought in Brian. Then. Okay. So we brought in Monica, Jeffrey, Brian. Yeah. Yeah, right. The other people we... We weren't very supportive of because we wanted, we didn't want Tom to feel hurt when we left because we had, you know, if we had warned him, then he might have gone flailing around looking for other people. And we thought we knew what was best for him. (laughs) And then the five year plan happened and we left at the end of the season in 19, in 2004. He was already ill, but we had no idea he was going to die. We we didn't think he was going to die. Well, he shouldn't have. He shouldn't have. It was an accident. It was an accident. Yeah. He died of a hospital-borne infection. Right. After a successful heart operation. Right. And we we felt... I think, was it the day that we said we were going to leave is when he told us he was having surgery? Yeah, maybe. After we told... I mean, and we still saw him that summer. We probably would, we probably would have hung around, but we told him we were available for any memory problems or, yeah. or anything that he needed. He he called us a few times. Do you know where this is? Can you help with that? We we did that, and we were so grateful for everything yeah. we had gained from him that we uh, we didn't want him to think we had abandoned him. But yeah. he may have. And I we, don't know, but so, somebody... Um, I felt guilty. She did One of his friends was kind of accusing us at one point. We had a conversation, and she was saying, you, you left him when he did so much for you. And I said, I had to say, you know, we did exactly what Tom would have done. We learned it from him. And what do you mean by that when you say you that? Take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. He didn't use to, people. Yeah, yeah I he, mean... You know, we wanted, we were yeah. painters, so we wanted to, as soon as we were able to be here and be painters, that's what we did, mm-hmm. which is, you know, what, <laughs> I got the story I told you about the high school kids, that's, right. he didn't even say goodbye to them, he just left, <laughs> and they were all sort of uh, hurt, hurt feelings. Yeah. Uh, we also suggested that Kate come in and do Candy's job. Oh, interesting. Because she was a painter, she right. was a good painter. She didn't pay any more, but we were impressed with her painting. We, we we curated a show up here and put her in it. And we thought that she could take over Candy's color mixing and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so she came in like a year before we left. And we didn't tell her we, her we were leaving. So when Tom died, and uh, after you had left, did you 
become involved in any way in, in all the kind of changes that happened immediately after that or you know when not when, in the slightest not in the slightest okay gotcha slam yeah. the door behind us gotcha gotcha yeah. and i still have dreams of working for tom Eight, 18 years later i still have dreams nightmares <laughs> of having to go back to work for tom in the new studio or even in the old studio or in some phantasmagorical studio where I've been gone for a long time, but I have to pick up where I left off. <laughs> and these are, these are night sweat type dreams. Wow. I don't wish it on you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You know, it's like those dreams of the, you didn't do your homework. You, you didn't study for the test in high school. Mm -hmm. Everybody has those. Yeah. So, yeah. You still have those dreams. Uh, no, it switched from the high school to, well, that's, to yes. working for Tom. To working for Tom, but yes. But you still have the Tom dreams. Yeah. Now. Wow. Yeah. Not lately. No, that's good. So, well, there, with, so there's two things that I that I, I want to ask you She about doesn't, them. by the way. She never. You don't have those dreams? No. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't sound like you had those dreams even when you were working at the studio either. Yeah. Yeah, I should yeah. mention that the last year or so, I was so desperate to get out of there that I kept staring at the front door wondering <laughs> if I could make a run for it. But, but okay, so with, I'm just curious. With everything that you've told me about working there... It was a great job. It was a great job. That I couldn't stand. But, so why? Yeah, why? Because I didn't want to be working for another person. I okay. wanted to just work for myself. Mm -hmm. I'd had enough mm -hmm. of working for other people. Candy was easygoing compared to me, as you can tell. <laughs> it does seem like work at the studio impacted you, both of you very differently. Because I was on my own. I was mostly mm -hmm. on my own. Mm -hmm. I had my little projects that, in fact, I mean, all this was going on down the far end of the studio. I didn't even hear most of the stuff. So, sort of, it sounds like consistently you were sort of having very specific kind of you were doing an addition or you were working on this not kind of overall managerial or administrative stuff no, no okay yeah yeah also the forklift that was for me right i told tom i i was getting older i couldn't lift them anymore they were getting heavier and i was getting older i said i can't lift these anymore so at first he had that's why he brought kevin kelly in to help me lift things onto the wall and you know I didn't want to end up with, you know, back problems and stuff. And then finally he got the forklift, Mr. Lifty. <laughs> I, have, I, have we seen this forklift? I don't, think we, I don't think we've seen this forklift. It's there in the studio. It should be. Yeah. But, but, you know, it was designed so that the work would sit on the two forks and it would bring it up to height. And then we only had to do the last two inches to get it on those carefully designed nail holes that we worked out with the fabricators and that that saved my back and and kept me working there because yeah. you know, Tom Tom didn't want to have windows in the studio he wanted to have complete control of the light and I said I cannot work in a studio where I don't know if it's day or night so he put the windows in and the the exhaust fan I insisted on the exhaust fan things like that so I I watched out for us and Tom watched after himself, and it worked. It worked for all those years. And we loved him. Yeah. We did. Except the times that we were angry at him. 
But inevitable. And, and he treated us like family. And he even sometimes called us Lane and Kate. Or his studio. Or Jenny. Family. Candy was Jenny, I was Lane, and Monica was Kate. Sometimes. <laughs> and... <laughs> And for many, you know, for many years, we would visit him in the country and mm-hmm. dine with them and, and, and swim with them and boat with them. We were very protective of him. But he stopped treating us like family and he started treating us like workers at one mm-hmm. point. And that happened with Robert Motherwell, too. You know, he stopped having lunch with me and started sending me out for sandwiches, things like that. <laughs> After a while, you get tired of your assistance. Like yeah. I mean, yes. it's a long time to be working with somebody. I mean, it, 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 there's a kind 20 of... 20 years and 26 years. Yeah, that's a really... And it's, three days a week. Three days a week, but it's still a very close working... I mean, it sounds like, yeah, you had your own space, but it's a very close working relationship. I mean, it's not that many people in the studio. When I first and, worked there, he used to bring me lunch. Really? It's, Claire would... <laughs> Salmon sandwiches. No, no, turkey. No, turkey. Oh, he used to. Claire used to make two turkey sandwiches, and, and he would bring in a paper bag, and I, I would I sit, sit and have lunch with him. So I don't know how. I don't know how I finally got out of it. <laughs> well, we, we uh, all started going out for lunch. Well, it was me. I at local out, restaurants. I went out by myself. I right. Went to, you know, I, Prince Street. I wanted to leave for an hour. <laughs> you know. Oh, so you slice. So you originated a tradition that now we have all been part of to one degree or another, which is the going out to lunch every day. And the four uh, o'clock break time. Or four thirty break time. Four thirty. Yeah, it's four thirty. That was candy. Yeah. yeah. I would go down the street and have pizza and a lot of times I'd bring he would ask me to bring him back a slice <laughs> from Ray's. We worked ten to six because we couldn't get to the city on Tuesday mornings from here. By nine, we didn't want to wake up that early, so he changed his work schedule an hour because we could get there by ten. A very you know sweetheart, generous guy, who did whatever worked best for him. He would not help our careers, and some artists help their assistants to get into galleries, to meet people, to network. A tiny bit half assed, that you didn't really want he us said to he leave. Knew a couple of people with you know, when we used to go, people used to go around with slides mm-hmm. in the olden days. Yeah, <laughs> so did you ask him for help or did that was inappropriate? Yeah, mm-hmm. for instance, well, we could yeah. not, we didn't take advantage of any of the connections we made except Jacques Kaplan through Tom because mm-hmm. it was inappropriate. Yeah. yeah, but he could, you know, he called up Holly Solomon and said. Will you look at this mm. this person's work? He called up Ivan. Right? Yeah, but we always thought he also said, but I don't really want to lose them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I heard other people would ask him to do that too. Other people that you know would come in and say, "Can you, can you, re- you know, recommend somebody?" And then I would hear the, <laughs> I would hear the phone call when when the person left. You don't want to look at this stuff, do you? Can you, mm. you know, can this person make an appointment? I know you don't really want to look at this. But... So it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't all that helpful. <laughs> That's good to know. I'm glad to hear it. And you should know that when he was writing his will, he took us aside and he said, I just want you to know that if anything happens to me, you'll always have a place to work. And we went, Oh, Tom, you mean we're going to have to keep working for you after you're dead? 
And that didn't happen with us, but it did happen with Monica. Yeah, it did happen. Yes, that is true. Oh yeah. She's still over She's there. still there. Still way longer than we. I don't even know. What is it? 28 years or something like that? Yeah. Everything that she said is true. I, I listened. I fact, mm-hmm. fact checked it. Even Jeffrey. Yeah. <laughs> Everything he said. There was something that I did want to go back to before we finish up. And we talked a little bit about it with you, Candy, but mostly in relation to your potential influence on Tom's work. But I, I wondered if, in all of your time, both of you working with him, if you felt any particular relationship or kinship between your own work and things that he was doing, or there was, or if you, re, you know, how that, you know, because you're around his work all the time, you were you know, physically involved with it. Were you ever kind of seeing it as something that was important for how you were thinking about your own work or, or yeah, I'm curious. I don't think so. Yeah. Plenty of other influences. It, it was a job. And like I said, I wasn't there because I admired his work. I was just there because there was a job. Right. You know how Jeffrey was so scholarly about Tom's oeuvre? Mm-hmm. We didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 we were not... We, we did not... Ju- ju- First of all, the one thing that Jeffrey said... That wasn't true. Was there, there were no critiques of our work. Oh. Tom didn't crit. He looked. Okay. Tell he me. Did. Yeah. He, he Maybe for them. But for us, he would look at the work and go, hmm, hmm, I like that. And that's about it. Um, there were no critiques because he always treated us as contemporary equals. And we viewed him as that famous artist whose work we do not judge. Because if we became involved in whether we liked what he was working on or something like that, that would kind of interfere with our usefulness there. And so we kept a distance from his, him as an artist and just dealt, dealt with his, his art manufacturing. We were his studio manufacturers. And, and that gave us a distance so we could go home and only think about our own work, which is what Candy's expressing. That's really interesting. So the distance actually itself was really important to both of you. To maintain that distance was important. Yes. Yeah. Not personal distance, but career distance. We had to keep telling ourselves, well, if we were as lucky as him, we would be as good as him, Mm -hmm. even though we couldn't prove it. (laughs) But that was the way we kept going. Right. I, I can definitely see how being involved so intimately with someone's work all the time would make you potentially want to keep a distance from it. And, and yes, but we totally respected his achievements. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, well that, and that actually leads me to the last thing I wanted to ask you, which is a similar, the last major topic that I wanted to talk with you all about was like, it's a question I've asked, you've heard me ask Jeffrey, you've heard me ask Monica about it, uh, Janice in various ways. But yeah, how, I know you have a, a different approach to his work than a lot of people. How would you describe, not in your own work, but just in general, art historically, aesthetically, you know, 
what is important about Tom Wesselman's work. Like, just, it doesn't have to be, I'm not looking for, like, an objective answer. I'm just saying, like, to you, when you think about his work, you know, what is, what comes to mind is what you think is of most importance in terms of, you know, his legacy or what he's done. I'm just curious what you think. Yeah. Got anything? Because I have to, I talk too much. His legacy, I don't know. Well, I thought the most important works were those enormous 3D, standing you know, multiple, still multiple canvas mm. that were so impressive. Yeah. In a room. And what was it about them that, I mean, I, they are impressive. What was it about them that you thought was particularly impressive that really made them stand out? Well, I just never saw anything like that. I never saw anything else like that. Um, and they were beautifully painted. It's true. It did have something also to do with the way they occupied space, the way they... Yeah, yeah, yeah. they filled fill the room. And... Scale. Yeah. The scale of it. So for you, those were works that... I always thought that those were way more important to me than any of the metal works. Mm-hmm. And that's because... Which is what that show... That show at Gagosian? Yeah. That was wonderful. Standing Still Lives. When they got out all those Standing Still Lives and spread them around in a, in a big enough place. That was great. Um, and we installed those. Oh, you did? For oh, that show? And we installed them in uh, Tubingen. There oh, were in Tubingen. A couple of them, and also in Tokyo. But they weren't in a big enough place. Right. Had to be, Gagosian was so much better. The way it was laid out. And you could really see them. In the yeah. big room. Yeah, because they really require negative space around them, right? To really oh, yeah. function. It's, yeah. It's so imposing. And you want me to comment yeah, on Yeah, I'm it? curious too, yeah. All right. First of all, I think history will decide long term. Just like, I, you know, in my canon, I don't do anything anybody recently deceased or mm-hmm. alive today because I think history has take time to work. And I always like Tom's work. I liked his his nudes, and I liked his figures. I was never a big fan of the faceless women because I didn't think it was sexist, but I like faces. I like faces with all the parts. But I, as soon as we were working for him, I canceled my subjectivity, my objectivity, my my judgment of his work because I didn't want to spoil the job for myself if I thought he was doing something bad or something good. I was aware that he had a manufacturing studio and I think sometimes the best work comes out of somebody working alone. And so I might have been critical of his production and yet I was glad to be part of it. Same way Cindy was with Red Grooms, you know, that was exciting for her. And I, I thought he was as good as most of the others, the pop artists and people like that. So I respected that. But remember, I worked for Motherwell and Wesselman. And Motherwell left the Janus Gallery when Wesselman came in, saying, I can't be in the same gallery with Tom Wessel. Really? Now, <laughs> Carol didn't tell you that story. Did not. <laughs> but you might go back and check with Carol, yeah. because it wasn't just Wesselman, it was the pop artists. Mm-hmm. Right, and right. I think well, that, that doesn't surprise yeah, me. Yeah, I think that was a mistake from Motherwell because he went to Marlborough and they ripped him off. So, but that's all other stories. And we really appreciated Tom. 
We liked that his work was out there in the world. Sometimes we felt like it took up space that maybe there might have been room for us. In you know, in a that's not his fault. No, it's not his fault. But it's just the way that in a metaphorical way, you know. It's just that, the mechanism of the that, whole thing. That, Famous artists aren't always famous because they're the best. The cream doesn't always rise to the top. There's a selection process that takes place from, by people with power and money. And some people are chosen and some people are left out. And we understood that we were the left outs, even though we had bits of career. And we've, we understood that sometimes good, you know, merit, sometimes you're chosen on merit. But it gets very muddy and cloudy about who deserves and who is overlooked. And so our experience was from that point of view. Tom's experience was he had a joke about, uh, he had a cartoon, actually. You know about the cartoons. I do. Yeah. Candy used to have to bring them to the New Yorker before he got messengers. Take, I used to take packages to the New Yorker. Yeah. But he had a cartoon that he made. That was the Metropolitan Museum, drawn out with a, a caption that said, The Metropolitan Museum of No Work by Tom Wessel. <laughs> and he thought he deserved, you know, his own wing. And so his ego was huge. And you had to, you had to appreciate a guy who was such a nice, kind, gentlemanly guy with an ego the size of uh, the Titanic. Maybe I shouldn't say Titanic, because it never sank. <laughs> and that's what it takes to get to that position. You need that ego. We didn't have it. I didn't have it. And, and so I'm a little bitter, uh, but mostly just appreciative for the life, life that I've had. I've had a great life, too. I always got to make my own work. And, and that's one benefit of having the day job. What else? And when we needed uh, references for the mortgage, mortgages for yeah. our apartment that we owned at one point and, and for this place, he wrote the most outrageously over-the-top complimentary reference of right. how we could work for him forever and we were going to make more and more money every year, which turned out not to be true. <laughs> and and even though we didn't have like a standard regular job, we could absolutely make any payments. And uh, so he helped us with our credit rate. Uh, it was a beautiful letter. Uh, we can't the find guy, it. Yeah, I wish we had it. The guy, the guy in the <laughs> bank was astonished. <laughs> He really likes you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah, the one, the, the one last funny question. This is actually one of the first, I think, the first time I encountered this. was like, maybe And then like, I have something else. Okay, Go good. good yeah. It was the first time I was at the studio. And there, like, on, I think it's like an easel or something. There is a pillow. And written on the pillow is a note Yes, that says Candy's ass pillow. Like, what is the story with this pillow? And why it's still there, by the way. It has not left. I know, I said it last time. <laughs> I think I wrote on it last time I was there. I signed it or something? Oh, yes, I think you did sign it. Yes, I think you did. What were you get? You were uncomfortable sitting on the stool and getting backache, so like, you got the pillow. I, really, I had to go to a chiropractor because of those stupid chairs that he had. Yeah. So really uncomfortable. I mean, it does, it yeah. does something to your, the twist. So, so I had a pillow. 
is my pillow. <laughs> <laughs> there were other things. Yeah. I have those chairs. I still have that. I still had to put something on them because they something about the way it twists your back. Mm. They're bad. Yeah, yeah. They actually look they're meant good. for sitting at a desk. Or, they're right. not meant for working at a table or. That makes sense. Yeah. We also had things like the leftover paint on the pallets would mm-hmm. go on cans and bigger and bigger, and, and we built towers <laughs> out of dried up acrylic paint, like four feet high. There's one up in the barn, yeah, and a pair of painter's pants. We started just putting it on the pants, putting on the, finally the pants could stand up by themselves, and that's up in the barn. I, I wore it as a Halloween costume, once, dressed as a, as a, 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 a per, an art, an artist impaled by, by his paintbrush. <laughs> And we, we used to do Halloween costumes that were very elaborate. Did you go to the studio in these Halloween costumes? No, no, no local, 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 local parades yeah, yeah. and parties. And gotcha. Yeah, we won the prizes. Won the, pro- won the prizes. So yeah. much that they stopped giving it to us saying, you've had to win. They told us you can't have any more prizes. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was the lexicon. If you haven't seen the lexicon. If you are interested in studio practice, do you remember the joke back in the ni- in the eighties? Uh, yeah, when you look up "stupid" in the dictionary, there's a picture of you. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was a we kept making that joke in the studio. <laughs> okay. Was, blah blah blah. There's a picture of you. And we did that with Monica, and we did uh, when you look up "slut" in the dictionary, there's a picture of you, Monica. Because so we look up "pop tart." Oh, pop tart. <laughs> that was it. Pop tart. <laughs> So so finally we so put, we would so we had we type up these dictionary little, we t- we put the thing in and a picture of we put a picture whatever. of Monica and and a definition of pop tart that was a running, like running that. joke for years it's, and it's, and each one of us would on the birthday would get an edition in the lexicon and it's still there it's still there dictionary should be it was, an, it was a little black dictionary. <laughs> I asked Monica if it was still there, and I said, next time I come, I'm going to steal it. Because <laughs> there was a lot of funny jokes in there. Well, it's really interesting that you guys are focused on Tom Wesselman's world in a way that, you know, it's rarely done for people. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like you're his biographers in a way. He wrote his own biography, of course. I know. Jamie's sister typed it for him. <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah, she he gave her the manuscript because she typed she it. Typed it. Because she, she really wished that she could have made corrections, but she wasn't allowed. This is this is someone with a PhD in art history. Oh, yeah. oh wow. <laughs> She's typing up the manuscript. Yeah. Your sister is an art historian. Yeah. And and continued to do art history after yeah. yeah. She's retired now. Mm-hmm. She had a full full career. Profession. Yeah. Professor. Architectural history, too. Okay. So, yeah, I wanted to make sure you knew about the Lexicon. Okay, well, and it was, now all, we know. Yeah. It was jokes. It was, it, we, we were like jesters and entertainers. Like I said, at one point, he was coming up with titles for his hundreds of songs, and we would suggest titles, jokey titles, you know. But at one point, he bought a title from Monica after... We had made so many suggestions for titles, so we stopped giving them titles. (laughs) (laughs) And they would do the music in the studio. And one of the people he was doing music with in the studio was a real suck-up who walked out with art and then tried to sell it on the market. Mm. And they were recovered. 
and he he made fakes and those turned up and they were recovered and this guy Tom refused to prosecute he would not he never prosecuted anybody even though they stole from him crazy and nice guy trusting person yeah. sometimes it was warranted <laughs> and sometimes it was warranted yeah any more questions? You said you had another thing. Well, that was the lexicon. The lexicon. Oh, okay. No, well, I think I am okay. If you have any more questions, just like the January 6th committee, <laughs> you, you can ask us follow-up questions. In September. And we will um, send you answers. As, or, you know, We can send you voice texts there you go. To, to add. 